Okay, welcome back to the podcast. This is episode number 178 with my guest, Christian Paradise. Uh, Christian is a pan player, uh, lives in the Philadelphia area, um, went to the University of Delaware, worked with Harvey Price there, and he currently works um, intimately with a band called Philly Pan Stars, based in Philadelphia. Um, I've crossed paths with, paths with Christian in various Brooklyn panoramas. I never really got a chance to sit down and hang with him much and chat. Uh, it was great to get to know him and get to hear about his background a little bit and what got him into pan. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. He's a great advocate for the art form and in specific the Philly Pan Stars. You should check them out. They're a great steel band. All right. Hope you enjoy this conversation. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Christian Paradise. All right, well, let's gavel this to order. Uh, Christian Paradise, I'm really uh, grateful that you're we're, we're chatting because, you know, and, I, and just to be clear, when I do podcasts like this, I, you know, it's a whole mix of like people I know really well, but then also total strangers. And to be quite honest, I love talking to total strangers more. Like it's more inter- it's more interesting to me to sort of start to scratch the surface on someone and just see what I learn and what we learn with each other. So. Um, you reached out to me on Facebook about probably two or three weeks ago, um, and I think that was the first time we had actually ever really touched base, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, maybe we've crossed paths in Brooklyn Panorama a million times and just never really stopped. But we've definitely done that. And you know, I tried. You lived in you lived in Philly for a while, right? I did. Yes, when in 2000, probably 10 and 11. My wife is a pastor, so we did a year there because she was in the seminary in, in Philly. She's yeah. a, L- a Lutheran pastor. So- I, I actually I tried my hardest to get in touch with you while you were there because oh. I think you were out in like Chestnut Hill area. I was, I was yeah, in um, Germantown. Oh, you were you? I was in Germantown. Shut up. So we were like neighbors. Yeah. <laughs> Where, where'd you? I lived on Sedgwick. I was at uh, McCallum and Haynes Streets, right by Germantown City Hall. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm sorry. I well, just to be clear, I'm I'm sorry if for some reason I missed that or we didn't quite. You know, I feel like I dropped a ball. Let me officially apologize now, a decade later, <laughs> for that. No, no, it's not, it's not a big deal. Um, but yeah, I want to get into you know you're wearing the Philly Pan Stars shirt, and that's you know, and I've I've I don't know much about Philly Pan Stars, but I know that I've seen you guys are in the Brooklyn Pan scene uh, for the Labor Day Carnival, and um, I, and there's a really budding Pan scene in the Philly area that, as you mentioned, I somehow managed to sort of miss when I was there. Um, but before we get into that, I kind of just want to know about Baby Christian. Like, what? Take me back to, like, when did steel drums and, like, what? what's your life? What brought you to this point? And when did steel drums kind of come across your, your field of, of vision? Well, I'm, I'm trying to think. I was about, I might, may have been about 10 years old mm. when I went on a family trip out to, to San Diego to visit some relatives and kind of in uh, in this vacant lot in this you know neighborhood of like row homes, um, someone had set up kind of an impromptu theater. Mm-hmm. So there was a there was a fence over the across the front of the lot. Of course, this was a long time ago, so I'm I'm really racking my memory to find all this. But there were there were two dudes, Trinis, um, who just had kind of set up this theater, and they were playing they were playing Pan. And uh, I was just hooked. Like mm-hmm. the, the sound of it really drew me in. So I remember my, my parents had a hard time pulling me away from that. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, and what did your from par- that what, point, sorry to interrupt. What did your parents do? Were they musicians? No. Um, uh, my parents are both deceased now. But mm-hmm. uh, um, 
my father had been an engineer. My father was, uh, he had actually been a, he was a World War II veteran, believe it or not. So, uh, can I ask you, did you pick his brain about World War II, or is that one of your regrets as a as a young person like me? I had a grandfather who had he wasn't he was in it right at the tail end, and I never asked him anything, and I feel like such an idiot that I never did. Well, I I had the foresight, I guess, when my dad's health was declining a little bit, to you know ask him a lot of questions mm. about, about his history and about the family, and I know you know within the family. Um, I'm the only one that he ever talked about, about his military experience because I was in the Navy too. Oh, you were. So okay. Shared, shared right. Yeah. I joined, I was in, I joined the Navy for steel band reasons. Well, thank you. I would love to talk about too, but well, thank you for, for joining the service. My, <laughs> my nephew, uh, and thank you for your service. My nephew is just joined the Marines. He's not a musician, but he, uh, he's now in Japan, Okinawa. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. I was in Yokosuka. I never served, but I, I have family close enough to me and some dear friends who were in the, in the Gulf, no, in the, in served in Kuwait in the, in the most recent sort of, uh, Middle Eastern fronts. So, um, I'm, it, the, this, that service mentality is getting closer to me. So I'm understanding it better as I guess what I'm saying. So, oh yeah. Hey, I, I didn't, I don't, it's not that I don't have any regrets about it. But, uh, but that's it paid off in some ways. But that's everything in life. I mean, I would I would say the same about playing contemporary music. <laughs> you know, like yeah. I don't have. I, uh, it's not yeah. that I don't have regrets, but you know, there's some composers more than others. I'm sure. Yeah, uh, yeah, you know. But um, but <laughs> but but go ahead. I mean, so continue. So yeah, so I, I got hooked um, out on the West Coast. From there, you know, I had been taking. Organ lessons, and I think by that time I maybe had started playing clarinet in school band. But uh, right away I knew that I wanted to be doing something related to Pan, and there wasn't any there wasn't any avenue for me at that point. But I switched to drums in school band, started taking drum lessons with the with the aim that at least that would get me closer to the goal. Mm-hmm. Um, I managed to get my hands on kind of a tourist ping pong pan um and figured a few things out abused the hell out of that instrument but you know managed to figure a few things out and then got to really dive deep once i went to college where'd you go to school um i went to university of delaware Mm -hmm. i did my undergrad there graduated in 99 joined the navy four years and then came back to delaware for my my uh masters and that's harvey price right it was, yeah. It was. Okay. You know, Harvey is somebody, too, that I think when I first started teaching at NYU as a grad student, Harvey's somebody who, like, again, it's like, I'm always amazed at how small the steel band world is, but how many, like, again, how many people I don't actually know. We just sort of, like, cross paths. And Harvey's definitely somebody um, that I've crossed paths a lot via email and on social media and have never met, actually met, met him face-to-face. And he seems, um, from what I can tell, he seems to have been a big driving force on the, one of the driving forces on the East Coast, but especially in, at, at the University of Delaware. Is, it, is that yeah. all basically, am I observing that relatively correctly? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay. Yeah, so I was there when uh, the first iteration of Steel Band at UD came in, because mm-hmm. uh, I think... We got our first set of pans in 95 or 96 there at UD. Mm. Um, Who built them? Those pans? Um, well, we had uh, we had some very, very old Ellie cellos. Mm-hmm. 
Um, we had a guy named uh, Alvin. I don't remember his last name. Alvin built some bases for us. Um, I think we had some we had some invader style tenors mm-hmm. and some other LE double seconds. So it was it was kind of a mix of <clears throat> of LE stuff and Alvin's stuff. Alvin was was a guy who was at that time living in Wilmington, Delaware. Mm, okay. And worked closely with bands. So you, when you're at UD um before you graduate with your undergrad, can you just tell me a little bit about the program there? Like what what kind of rep were you all playing and what was the, you know, as you you know, going from having a ping pong pan and being like, oh, I'm figuring some stuff out to all of a sudden going into school where the environment is you're studying this seriously, you know, um, what was that like for you? And how did that what was that experience like for you? Well, I mean, it was great. You know, I I was lucky that I've been, you know, I have kind of 25 years in the steel bands at University of Delaware to kind of see how it grew mm-hmm. and in those early days. um you know, what we ended up doing was arranging a lot of our own music. You know, we had these instruments, we had a couple of, you know, me and, and the guys who were kind of the core of the band at that time mm-hmm. had a few albums. So we had, um, you know, Our Boys Pan Progress CD, which was huge back then. Mm-hmm. I have um, that one. Yeah, we had, uh, we had, you know, a couple of uh, Lord Kitchener Best Of CDs. Were these Ice Records? I know the I know the yeah. our, our boys was probably was our boys on Ice Records or was that they were on Mango, which I think okay. was I think that was a subsidiary of Island Records, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. And was that our boys one? I mean, I know Tom Miller played drums with our boys at some point. Was that the one that he played drums with? Yeah, well, okay. oh, well, I mean, he did he did most of the arrangements, although it's really hard to find the credit. But yeah, I think okay. I think Tom did most of the arrangements, and then Andy did one arrangement, hmm. and I think maybe maybe. You know, there were a couple of Ray tunes, yeah, but yeah. of Ray's arrangements too. Okay, all right. Yeah, so we did that, and then we had, uh, oh, what was the Super Blue album? There's one arrangement uh, of his called Barbara that I know that gets played a lot by steel bands. Yeah, no, this was this was after Barbara. Um, it was the one that had uh, Happy Carnival, it had uh, Signal for Lara. I don't know. Anyhow, mm. we had we had we had like a, a core group group of players who really kind of got into pan deep, and we all just started transcribing transcribing tunes, arranging them poorly, and then you know kind of figure th- figuring things out. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know that process, I think, you know, having having the room to do things poorly actually helps you make progress really fast. Oh man, you do not have, you do not I mean that's the whole premise of my podcast is like you know, I I started back in 2016. This is a 2015 maybe when when like the I don't want to get into politics. I mean unless you want to talk politics, I'm happy to, but Oof. when we were getting to the the current administration sort of winning and I I personally was like we can't talk to each other and I'm not good at talking to people I don't agree with or don't even really know that well, so I'm going to start doing it. I did this podcast and it's just like it it wasn't until I did like a hundred of them that I understood how shitty I was at <laughs> talking to people. And like yeah. you start to learn like when to be quiet, when to just sit in silence and let someone speak. Like all of those things are really hard to figure out. But similarly to arranging pan music, like you don't know what you don't know and you have to get in there and fail a bunch of times. And I'm curious and for me, when 
that failure, um, I didn't really start to learn how to fix it with like pan arranging. And I'm still not, I wouldn't say I'm a pan arranger, but just in terms of working with steel bands until I started meeting Trinidadians and Caribbean people in in particular. Um, Can you tell me like, when did that element, like when did working with Trinidadians start to enter your life? Or was that always the case at UD? Yeah, well, um, Harvey, Harvey made a lot of contacts with the West Indian community in Wilmington really early on. Mm. So, you know, I, I mentioned Alvin. Um, Alvin was a really amazing contact for us because he was a pan builder and tuner. Mm-hmm. Um, there was another another guy, uh, uh, Atiba Fields, who's still a close friend of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, he's... Uh, <clears throat> He was the he was the bass player with Brother Valentino back at a certain point, um, but he also he plays Pan, um, you know, a strong musician, real good advocate for Pan. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I think he's down in Trinidad right now, and I think he's currently playing with Calypso Rose. Oh wow! Yeah, That's so awesome. you know, he's still on the scene. Um, there's another guy, uh, Trevor Stubbs, is a pan builder and player who had a you know a long association with Phase Two, mm-hmm. close with Bogey. Um, those may have been been the first three guys that kind of you know opened up the culture a little bit to me. And what was that? I mean, but for you, what were some of the things that were like oh moments as you were like hearing them talk about arranging or the food or hearing the way the language is spoken. Like what were some things for you that were like, Oh, like not that you've been doing it wrong, but that it's time to sort of retool the way you were seeing some things. Man, I I feel like I have a couple of those moments every day still, even 25 years later. Well, that's good. That means you're a human. I mean, as far as I know, as far as I can tell, that's a good thing. Yeah. Um, you know, I think, um, when I was really trying to uh, to pull information out of Stubbs, um, he said a few things about kind of of how to interpret rhythms in the steel band context. Mm. You know, up up to then, you know, I I, I had a very very traditional music schooling, mm-hmm. and I kind of played rhythms authentic to the way they're printed on the page. You know, a little bit robotic, but um, you know, it was it was after working with Stubbs that I realized often in Calypso music and in Trini music, you know, when you see uh, uh, like like the rhythm, especially if it's repeated like that, you know, it shouldn't be that, you know, mechanical, you know, and you can almost make it a quintuplet, mm-hmm. you know, somewhere, you know, somewhere between where it's printed and a quintuplet and like take the average of that. And you're going to be spot on, mm-hmm. and vice you versa. Know? Having like having quarter note triplets, you can't, you know, just going da 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 da. Like it's not ever going to feel like that. It's going to zack gak 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 gak. There's going right, to be a, right, right. a lilt to it. It's yeah, not swung. And, like and, it, and to be clear, it's not swung. It's not da 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 da. It's this weird mash of. It's a hybrid on the spectrum. It's somewhere hovering in the in some weird nether world. Right. You know, you're right. Yeah, and those those triplets. You know, somewhere between like a a dotted, dotted, not dotted rhythm mm-hmm. and and an actual triplet, and even and that was one that I always like really tried to drive home with my students. Like, you know, even if you see triplets printed in cut time, you've got to do that still. 
And like for some reason, like if something was printed in, 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 you know, common time, you know, students had no, no problem, you know, catching that feel, but in cut time man, half note triplets in cut time really threw them. So, yeah. well, that's, did, did, um, do you, when you teach that stuff, how do you, I mean, is it, there's, there's a, there's a point at which like for me, I mean, again, I'm really fortunate that I teach at a place where you can just get on the subway and have a huge Trinidadian population in 10 minutes, you know? Um, and I teach with Kendall Williams now at, at Princeton or NYU and at Princeton. And he, it's just like, I can just be like, Hey Kendall, can you phrase this for me? And it's just way quicker for them to hear somebody who has that in their bones from when they were three. Yeah. Yeah. Like how do you, how do you personally go about teaching that stuff to, to students and get them to understand? I know for me, like I have to practice playing those triplets before I remember how it felt, you know, like, cause I don't, I don't do it. You don't do that in John Cage's music. There's other ways you feel a five and a seven in John Cage's music that is unique to his music. But with, with Calypso and Soka, that's been something I have to think about it a little bit before I say it, you know, just to make sure I'm actually, you know, remembering how those rhythms are felt. Yeah. Well, I don't know. For, for me, you know, I've been fortunate that I don't keep one foot in the legit music world. Like, you know, I dove into steel band with both feet now. So I don't have to, to switch modes at ever. I well, guess. I may be jumping headfirst into the pool with you here in a couple of years, depending on how the election goes. So if, uh, if you need, I may need some help, throw me a life raft. If I decide to take my foot out of the other one and jump full, full into well, the pan. <laughs> and what a scandal that would be if you jumped in with Philly pan stars. Huh? You're gonna... <laughs> but I think the world needs fewer scandals these days. I'll just, I'll just <laughs> toss it right over the plate, you know? <laughs> Um, well, let me let me ask you. So uh, the the navy you mentioned the navy and you sort of joked about the steel band portion of it. I I went to Dover High School and Tom Miller brought the the navy steel band to my high school the year after I graduated and they did a whole thing with Ray Holman and it was like awesome. I mean, it was ra- yeah. it was raging. I mean, these were it wasn't like you're getting together and you're just playing Marianne, you know, and that's it. Like the, these were folks who could shred and yeah all wearing Navy uniforms, you know? And I felt like in that moment, this weird sort of like, I didn't know what national pride was as a, like as a freshman in college, but I was like, I am psyched that my government feels important enough to actually make the national instrument of another country, part of our armed forces. Wasn't that amazing? And then it got disbanded. And I'm I'm curious if you could just tell me a little bit about your experience in the Navy steel band. And because I think a lot of people, most people, quite frankly, even in the pan world may not know that the Navy had a steel band. Yeah. And it, it's, it's, you know, that band was so important in the history of pan globally too, you know, not, not just a, in the history of pan in the U S or anything like that. You know, that, that band spurred a lot of innovation even back in Trinidad. Well, tell me why. But, so huh? tell me why. Oh, well, uh, I mean, I think, one of the ways was, it, you know, the Navy Steel Band gave Ellie Minette some of his first opportunities to um, tune outside of Trinidad and kind of expand his concept of where this instrument could go. When did the Navy... Um, so, yeah, sorry, I, I jumped the gun with that question. Take me, like, Navy Steel Band? I never heard of it. Like, what? What's when did it start? So, it started, man... I don't know if I could give you exact dates. I know it started in the 1950s. 
No kidding. Um, Shut up. Yeah, it started. It started in the 1950s in Puerto Rico. Um, and you know, Andy Martin has a whole book about this that you got to read. I will. What's it called? Yeah. Um, it's called Ambassadors of Steel. Okay. But um, yeah, so it started in the 1950s, and it was started by Admiral Daniel Gallery, who mm-hmm. was. Uh, famous in World War II for being the first admiral to board and capture a German U-boat. And along with that U-boat, you know, they, they captured the Enigma machines and were able to, you know, crack Wait. codes and things like this. So the guy who found the Enigma, the Enigma machine. Yeah. Also in his brain rattling around was like, you know, when I'm done with the Enigma machine, we're going to start a steel band. Like, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's it's that preposterous. I you know, love the thing people. was I love people you know, so much, Christian. I can't even tell you that like yeah. that's so, amazing. So as everyone as I'm sure you know, you know, the Navy had a refueling station in Chaguaramas, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so Dan Gallery had visited there at some point, um, caught a taste of pan and ordered his navy band, which was stationed in uh, Puerto Rico to drop their clarinets and tubas and to learn pan, you know, and because he was Admiral Dan gallery, the man who captured a U boat, like he could get away with that stuff. You know, that stuff wouldn't fly with just your run of the mill Admiral Christian stop for two seconds. I'm really sorry. This may seem offensive. I need you to just get that book ambassadors of steel. Just start reading it to me. We'll pick up. I mean, I have to be done at 11. We'll pick up again next week. You can just keep reading. But this, yeah. this, this is like such an amazing, an amazing story. Yeah. I know it has oh, nothing I'm, to do I'm, with you personally, but this is, this is fascinating. I'm a little surprised you hadn't heard all of this well, stuff. Well, I have. I mean, don't be. I'm an idiot. And I, there's lots of things. <laughs> I know way more about John Cage's music than I do about other you know, pockets of the pan world. And that's why I'm talking to you. Because um, yeah. I have a tertiary knowledge. Again, like I knew the steel band, the Navy steel band existed. I know about how, you know, I know how the two plots of land on, you know, in Trinidad became naval bases. I knew that that happened prior to World War II. Um because we traded 50 destroyers to Churchill in exchange for two plots of land in Trinidad, World War II, yeah. or then Pearl Harbor happens, we're now in the war, now there's a refueling station. It's like all of these things, puzzle pieces were getting put into place. But I think for me, the like, what did Trinidad smell like part of these stories? This is actually the stuff that I don't know. And I'm really like, this is the shit that's fascinating to me. So sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you there, but I did. And I'm sorry, but continue. <laughs> oh, no, no. Oh, where, where did I leave off? You left. So he, um, so he he is in Puerto Rico, and he he asked the band there to to switch to playing pan. Yeah, so so they did that. Um, he sent them down to Trinidad. Um, I think they worked closely with invaders at that point, if I'm not wrong. And that's where Ellie's um, tie comes in, I imagine. Yeah, because he yeah, was well, he was you know, with invaders. Ellie's reputation in Trinidad is already pretty well established, mm-hmm. but. Um, yeah, so they did that. Uh, they came back to Puerto Rico, kind of told the Admiral that it's, it's way deeper than they thought and that they needed more help. And so he pulled some strings to get Ellie to visit Puerto Rico and, uh, some band there. That is, cr- uh, okay. I, I won't make you, I, I was joking about reading me the book and I won't make you give me the cliff notes function. I'll, I'll read it. But so now you, you enter the Navy steel band when? Well, 
here's where it gets funny, right? So, so I graduated University of Delaware with two degrees. I got one in computer science and one in music. Uh huh. And I was dreading a career in computer science. I had no no desire to sit in front of a, a computer screen for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. And so when I found out about the Navy Steel Band, that was like my lifeline, right? So I went, I auditioned really well in the audition, I think. They they were like, they were messing with me a little bit, you know, asking for like, you know, oh, play the, play an a, a F-sharp Spanish Phrygian scale and stuff like that, you know? And I was like, oh, I actually... I can I can work my way around that, so mm. I did all right. Um, I think I would fail that test miserably, bro. Oh, <laughs> I'd, I'd be like, all cows eat grass. I, you know, I've been, I'm not sure about the F sharp frigid. Dirtier about scales and stuff like that then than I am now. <laughs> so I did all that, signed my contract with the government, uh, went to boot camp, and then at some point during boot camp. Um, I got a visit from a master chief musician who came to see me in the barracks and said these words that I'll never forget. Um, The Navy steel band has been disbanded. You still have a contract with the government. um, And so you have a choice in front of you. You can either go to the armed forces school of music and re audition on drum set and try to get into one of the fleet bands as a drum set player or you can paint ships gray for four years. <laughs> so I don't want to assume the decision you made, but Christian, what choice did you make? <laughs> I went to the Armed Forces School of Music. Oh, the set. Not a yeah. big fan of gunmetal so, gray, are you? Oh well, I still got plenty of that. <laughs> but yeah, so that's that's how I ended up. I got into the um, I got into the show band um, station based in Japan. Okay, and and played played big band drums for four years. But while I was in Japan, that also led me to hook up with Yoshihiro Harada. And I was one of the early members of Panorama Steel Orchestra. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got in tight with uh, a lot of the, the Japanese pan players at that time. Now there are a lot more of them. But Can I ask you a question about that? Um, you know, I was in Trinidad in 2015 drilling Brooklyn Steel Orchestra for the ICP yeah. competition. And... Um, you Actually, mentioned- I ran into you there too. Oh. I ran into you. Yeah. Okay. We were probably all decked out in our costumes and covered yep. in carob. So I maybe <laughs> don't remember yeah. much of that night, but um, the-, the carob was covered in us. Yes. The um, you mentioned earlier that like you grew up playing some of the calypso rhythms like square, you know, and you have you know because you weren't from that culture, and and me too. Um, I remember being in Trinidad at that point. And feeling like, oh, this is a, you know, there's all these bands from from all over the world, but specific Japan. And then hearing Japan play, the Japanese band play. And was it was it Panorama Steel Orchestra? That was the band that played? Yeah. Yeah. And, yep. he, and hearing that band and about one and a half minutes in being like, this is a Japanese band playing Calypso. This sounds like Japanese people playing Calypso in the same way it sounds like an Ohio kid playing Calypso whenever yeah. my high school steel band I'm saying that not ascribing any negative emotions or feelings about that. I was just like calling balls and strikes. Like, oh, wow. Yeah. Except when they got done, that audience went apeshit. Yeah. And I thought to myself, the audience cares less about that feel than I do. (laughs) Like, why am I, why am I putting so much weight in that? And I'm I'm just kind of curious, like being one of the few foreign bands in that time. And they placed really high, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? 
I think I, I think we came in eighth. I think we were, we were ahead of Silver Stars. I yeah. remember that. You guys beat yeah. out some Trinity bands and like yeah. out of twenty three bands. So anyway, can you just talk a little bit about like why are there so many Pan players in Japan? How did the, how did Pan explode? I mean. Um, I have so many friends that are, you know, have Japanese, Yoko Asada, like, I'll, I'm just curious, how in the hell did Pan get in Japan so, so, in such a big way? Yeah. I mean, I wish I could tell you more than that, just that, you know, it seems like when Japanese people choose a passion, you know, again, they seem to dive in with both feet. Uh-huh. So, you know, when I was, when I was living in Japan, um, you know, pan players were pretty rare. You know, Japanese pan players were pretty rare. Mm-hmm. There was, you know, Harada-san and kind of, you know, people who kind of attached themselves to him. Um, and then there was a, there was a pan tuner, um, Sonobe, um, who no longer tunes, mm-hmm. from what I understand. Um, and I think there may have been one or two pan players down south, too. Okay. Um, but I think I think it's just been a matter of of people, you know, kind of picking that as their their pursuit and just really, really going all in on it. Um, I couldn't say more than that. No, that's I've, it's been cool to see how it's grown. I just think it's one of the things. I mean, I think right now the conversations around um, in the air about how other cultures look at or adopt other cultures music like how a japanese culture is going to absorb a trinidadian music and then perform it like what does that mean how does that happen why does that happen what changes when that happens is it good is it bad like all of those those things to me are questions they're just things i'm i'm noticing being asked but again like you can have all the thoughts about that stuff except when i was in trinidad and they played and that whole audience stood up and went ballistic there's a point at which I have to not care about what I personally think and just be like, well, if the approval from Trinidadians is there, then why why am I questioning what's happening? And again, like I don't have a question here or even really a fully formed thought as you can tell, but it's it's fascinating to me that Pan somehow Pan is one of those things that somehow like a weed poking up out of the cement in various cultures somehow manages to always do it. And I, I why I'm, 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 that's why I'm talking to people, but it's just an observation I have. Yo, I'll tell you something being, being part of that, of Panorama Steel Orchestra during the ICP was one of the weirdest and best experiences of my life. Just to be, you know, kind of the, you know, the native English speaking bass player who really didn't belong to either culture that was there, but kind of like as a third party you know, as a participant observer, right? Mm-hmm. It was wild, man. And some of the some of the cultural disagreements and mm-hmm. you know, little clashes. I'll give you an example. So, uh, you know, we were host. You know, every band in the ICP was hosted by a local band, right? That's right. So, like BSO, the Japanese where, band was, where were you guys at? We we were at Pandemonium. We were at Pandy. Got it. Um, and so one of the first nights there, when the full band was rehearsing. Um, uh, pandemonium folks kind of hosted a dinner at the pan yard for all the Japanese players who came in and, you know, it was great. There was, there was, you know, roti and palau and all the, you know, 
all the stuff you'd want to see at a good a good trini dinner mm-hmm. and at the end of the meal um the uh all the japanese players kind of took all of the, the styrofoam containers kind of brushed off all the food garbage into a garbage bag stacked the styrofoam containers sorted out all the plastic utensils and then sorted out all the paper napkins and had everything, you know, all neatly arranged in different piles. Mm-hmm. And I remember, you know, people hanging from, from pande- pandemonium, just kind of like standing back, like kind of watching all this. And then after the, the Japanese were done sorting all of their garbage, they kind of just all crammed it into garbage bags, you know, undoing everything mm. and, and tossed it somewhere. But, you know, there were there were a million little things that really highlighted, you know, just about how how different those two cultures were that were even more apparent, you know, to me from a third culture kind of like watching. It's one of the things, too. I mean, I I grew up, you know, um, I I heard things about, you know, other cultures, whether it be about black cultures, like, oh, they're lazy or they don't show up on time. And, you know, you hear the stereotypes and then. Again, as a third party, and for me, I have, I've always tried real hard to, and it's like I'm being asked to drill sometimes, and it's like you can't take a passive role when you're being the driller in a, in front of a band. That said, yeah. I try real hard to be like, what what am I observing here in terms of how this band, not even just this culture, but this band prioritizes things. Some bands in Trinidad prioritize rehearsal discipline over the social aspect. You go to Renegades... Yep nobody's nobody's screwing around in renegades nobody's drinking at their their pan or eating at their pan but that doesn't mean that's right or wrong you go to skiffle bunch the vibe you go to phase the the vibe is different the thing i've i've always observed is like it's just a how how cultures prioritize different things in their in their world sometimes you know time promptness isn't the thing that's at the top of the list it has nothing to do with being hard workers or not because they'll tell you rehearsal starts at seven it doesn't actually start till nine thirty, but they're going to go till four so you can't say this is a lazy culture you know like that's not it's just a reprioritization and again it's like the, the japanese culture prioritizes disposal of waste in a specific way trinidadian yeah. culture i and this is a broad brush but it's like they don't and i do feel like that moment of the jap of a japanese culture having to just sort of deal with that because you're guests. And what I know about Japanese culture, again, I could be broad brushing here, being a guest somewhere is a very important role. And learning how to yeah. do that, learning how to navigate that is crucial. And I have my students go to Brooklyn like, man, you need to go to a pan yard. You know why? Because you're going to have to say a prayer at the end of the rehearsal. You're not going to do that at NYU because I might get fired and I'm not going to try to do that. But it's important that you understand that that's a, that's a prioritization in the pan yards I've been to. And that's important to learn. So anyway, just to sort of, I'm just re-highlighting the things you're saying as like, that's crucial. That's, that's as an observer, as a third party, um, observing how a culture prioritizes things is crucial to your understanding of that culture. Yeah. Um, can we, can we get into your Philly pan stars? I know I'm sort of been avoiding the most obvious advertisement you've been, you, you have here and, and the thing that is now like your main, it seems to me your main focus. Like, can you tell me about Philly Pan Stars and what they're? I mean, I've seen you. You're one of the few bands that is outside of the New York, the Brooklyn Caribbean Pan scene that performs over Labor Day. Can you tell me about how you got involved with Pan Stars? Um, how did I get involved with Pan Stars? 
hard for me to remember. I kind of, I, I vaguely remember my first time at the pan yard. Um, and that was, you know, that was long before pan stars ever entered panorama, mm-hmm. but we were, we were a fixture at Juve, mm. you know, and, and pan stars always, you know, placed very, very highly, uh, during Juve, but never had, never had the forces to be a panorama contender until mm. 2016. Um, but yeah, so I, I, I jumped in there. I couldn't even tell you what year. I'm sorry. That's fine. Um, it's been a while now. Um, I jumped in there and, and, and played tenor in the stage side for a long time. Mm-hmm. And um, at a certain point, you know, started doing a little bit of arranging for the band. Um, and I guess it was 2015. Um, it was during a, a conversation with Pompey, who's the band captain, mm-hmm. and a couple of other guys that were there. Um, you know, they were all talking about how they wish, you know, we could do a panorama and the whole, the whole thing that was limiting us, you know, believe it or not, it wasn't instruments. We had the instruments. Mm-hmm. We had, we had more basses than you would believe. Um, we had more, more cello pans, a ton of pans in the low end. Mm-hmm. And the whole thing that was holding us back was just the lack of players mm-hmm. because, uh, you know, the Trini community in Philly or the West Indian community in Philly isn't as massive as it is in New York mm-hmm. to be able to, to field those bands. But because I had been teaching at University of Delaware, I had access to students. And so we had a conversation that if if I could bring in 40 outside players, we would have a band. And so I did. I started. I started selling the idea to my students at UD. Um, you know, at that point, at that point, I was teaching the beginning band, um, and on various semesters, I was the assistant director of the advanced band, Delaware Steel, with Harvey. Mm-hmm. So um, I started selling the idea to students, and then I also started to reach out to other players around the U.S. Um, you know. One year in Trinidad, I played with Silver Stars, um, which you probably know is full of Americans, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And it occurred to me that, hey, any American that's willing to buy a ticket to go to Trinidad to play a panorama mm-hmm. would probably buy a ticket to go to Philadelphia to play a panorama or to New York. Right. So I reached out to them. Um, I reached out to uh, a couple of other collegiate steel band directors. Um and managed to get, you know, I think I think I brought in forty-five or fifty outside players to play in Philly Pan Stars mm-hmm. to augment, you know, the twenty players that maybe we had homegrown, so that we we could have a band that that could represent the city well, mm-hmm. you know. And if you if you talk to Poppy, the band captain, he'll tell you that the the quote he remembers for me is saying. I don't want to look like that Boston band because I guess uh, in 2015 or in 2014, you know, Boston Metro came down mm-hmm. and they just, they didn't have a lot of players and compared to the size of the New York bands, like just visually, they didn't look like a, a, a contender. It didn't yeah. look like a panorama. One of the unfortunate things, I mean, the big differences in the Brooklyn panorama compared to Trinidad, uh, there's many differences, but one of the big ones is there's no different categories. Like, 
when, yeah. you, when you compete in Brooklyn, you could have a if you have a, a twelve member band or you have a hundred and ten member band, they're, they're competing in the same category. And in Trinidad, there's pa- there's single pan, there's medium, small band, like there's all these different categories that you can slot into and compete against your, you know, the same size of group. Yeah, 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 and you know, I I don't necessarily think that's that's a drawback either. I mm-hmm. like having everyone in one category. I think I think. What you saw at the ICP, it was interesting to see, mm-hmm. um, you know, bands that we think of as medium bands or small bands. Remember Supernovas at ICP, um, right. still small at that point, you know, competing against the big boys. Mm-hmm. And like it, it put everything into a new light because yeah. some bands clearly outplayed bands that were in larger categories. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think that's a cool thing about New York. And the other cool thing about New York is that the time limit is still 10 minutes. Man, I love that. I think I think those extra two or three minutes in an arrangement, like there's a lot of great music that happens in that extra, you know. Yeah. It's just it's just an opportunity to dive deeper into the, the I variations. Would, I would love to, I mean, I, this is one of the, I would love to just like, if I had a year of nothing to do on my hands, I would just be talking to different people like this and we would pick like one panorama to just dig into and just do that every day. And at the end of the year, you'd have 365 like deep dives on different panoramas that happen. Like there's so yeah. much music that happens that just disappears and no one ever knows about outside of yeah. that parking lot in Brooklyn or the pan yard, you know, the month prior. And um, anyway, just in terms of the canon, like, man, there's only like out of the, how much do you think of the canon actually gets published and known about outside of those world, uh, that, that world, I would say maybe 5% of the music. Oh, yeah. Maybe that's yeah. generous of, um, so anyway, just to say, I, I agree with you. Maybe the 10, the 10 minute limit gives a little bit more leg room to an arranger to try some stuff out. I've been thinking if you want to do a deep dive into one year of panorama, we should do 1979 mm-hmm. when when finals, there was a boycott, so there was never a finals, so nothing was ever decided. But there are some recordings of, like, prelims. This is in Trinidad or in Brooklyn? In Trinidad. Okay, all right. Yeah, there was no there was no panorama in Trinidad in 1979. But there are still some recordings from preliminaries. It would be really cool, I think, that, to track those down. Well, let's and um, like let's maybe I'll take 51% responsibility to make that happen. And if you have the other 49, as long as as you get the lion's share, I'm cool. I will take the extra, (laughs) the extra percent uh, to make that happen. Um, Well, can you tell me a little bit? I mean, that's a, I I appreciate your approach to, to, to bringing in students. I mean, that's the one thing for me at NYU that dawned on me early on. Yeah. I've been there now for 15 years, 16 years. And it wasn't, it was like 2010 when Kendall was a student of mine there where I was like, Oh yes, of course. Like, there's only so much I'm going to be able to teach these kids about this stuff. They should just get on the subway and go check this out. And I've been really pushing them. I haven't required it of them, but I've been pushing it on them to be like, go do this. And little by little, I have about four or five kids every year that go do it. But the, also, the re, there's kids from Oberlin who come out and play with Cassim. There's there's a yeah. whole that, – that is a very common thing. Um, and in Trinidad, like you said, uh, Liam Teague, I don't know. He's not arranging for Silver Stars anymore. I don't. I'm not sure, but he also would, I mean, when Liam would come down, there'd be a huge uh, crop of kids from the University of Akron would go down and play, Um, West Virginia, NIU, like that's a, that's becoming more common. Um, And, but I think it does two things. It makes a band feel bigger, but it also gives those students a, like, if they can't afford to go to Trinidad, like you don't need a passport to know what it's like, I guess is the larger 
the larger point, you know? So anyway, just wanted to yeah. highlight, like, it's awesome that you're pushing your students to do that. Yeah. Well, it was, it was a really, really effective marriage of the two bands for a long time. So I think, I think both sides of the equation got a lot out of it. Well, how's, what's the current state of affairs with Philly? I mean, I know obviously Panorama is, 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 uh, in Brooklyn is canceled this year, but how, what's the state of affairs with what's Philly pan stars? Where are you guys' heads at now? Things are a little rough right now because you know the the future is so uncertain, and now and now that I'm no longer at University of Delaware, I've lost access to a lot of resources yeah. that benefited that benefited Pan Stars. So, um, you know, from the looks of things, you know, we are going strong to. Um, to win a panorama in New York very soon in the, in the next year or two, um, depending on when the next panorama is. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, honestly being, being shut down like this has really, really taken its toll on the band. Um, we've had a couple of key players that have had to move away because they've lost work. Mm -hmm. Uh, Um, did you have anybody? I I mean, for me, the, Pardon me. The there's the like the biggest thing about missing Panorama or missing this cult. I don't say this culture, but just the pan being being in in a Panorama band. This right now um, is this is the social aspect. I mean, to me, like I haven't hugged anybody since March. And yeah. one of the things that when I'm on my deathbed and somebody's like, "What do you remember about a pan yard?" It's going to be the physical contact with people. It's going to be everybody you fist bump with. Everybody, when you walk in a pan yard, says hello to you. When you say good night, they all respond. You know, like yeah. those sorts of things are the things that that I'm really missing right now. And when I, when I, you know, but also, uh, I don't know if you know Martin Douglas, Dougie, Dougie Douglas. Yeah. Across, I mean, he passed away in March of COVID, and it's like yep. the impact of this other thing that we're all dealing with, and the loss of somebody like Dougie, who was a big mover and shaker in the in the scene. Um, I have anxiety about what that means for the sort of um, social glue that is holding this whole thing together. Um, I, I have anxiety about it. I'm not worried that it's, I mean, the one thing I've learned about pan culture is that they figure it out and, um, and I, and I trust in that now, but man, it's been, it's really hard to see. It's just really hard for me to see, like, again, being that third party observer most often, um, it's just, it's really hard to see. And I, I hope we figure it out. I hope Trinidad is able to open up again for, I, I, I've been telling Junior Bergrello at Skiffle Bunch, you know, he's the mayor in San Fernando. I'm like, send a jet ski. I'll be pulling up. <laughs> like, like I'm going to be rowing my ass down there in March of, or in February, even if you guys aren't opened up. So send me a jet ski um, because this is, um, I don't know, it's terrible. I mean, we're both agreeing this is an awful time, <laughs> but um, yeah, but uh, I we gotta have we gotta have hope and, and figure it out because I, I think when the panorama does happen again, that's the one I think people are gonna go gangbusters and I'm I'm hope very so. very excited to see it. I hope so. You know, Philly still has uh, a message to send too. So yeah. But you know, part of part of my part of my ulterior motives of of talking to you today was to try to keep Philly, you know, part of the conversation of what's going on in New York too because. Hey, you know, I've heard rumors about there not being a panorama next year either because of all this. And, you know, whatever the New York pan community decides to do, 
you know, I want to make sure that Philly is part of the conversation because I don't want us left out of it. Well, I, I want to, um, I appreciate you reaching out and, and for that ulterior motive, but I, I want you to not feel like that needs to be an ulterior motive. Like we're, we're, we are in the same, we're all in the same boat. Um, Actually, we're all in the same storm, just different boats. And I, my boat has been tethered to the pan boat scene for my life, and I don't plan on, on untethering it. So, um, my boat's tied to yours, whether you like it or not, my friend. And let's um, let's just let's keep this conversation going. I will say one of my regrets, just as a person, and I, I will say it's, you know, just in my thirties, missing not being not being in town, being on the road a lot, um, not connecting with the UD scene as proactively as I should have is something that I, I do wish I had done better. Um, just just as a, you know, as a young kid trying to figure out where my ass was supposed to be (laughs) half the time, I, I do regret not reaching out to Harvey more often. So, um, but all that said, we are now connected and, um, I will take 51% responsibility to make that, keep that connection going as we move forward, because this has been awesome. And man, I am going to buy that ambassadors of steel book because, you blew my mind with that. So for no other reason um, that this podcast has been worth it to me because you, you really, really taught me a whole lot. And before you dive into the book, just check out the bibliography and the uh, interviews and you can see my name like right under Andy Norell's. It's pretty cool. Nice. Nice. Well, Christian, I'm going to, I'll let you go here. Um, I really hope you stay safe and stay healthy and um, please, please, please know um, like my door is always open. I, I, I don't like doing podcasts with somebody only once. Um, and so we can get together and I would love to do podcasts with you or we do just talk about, let's pick two panoramas and just really talk about why you think they're important. And I'm totally cool. down to do that too. So, um, until next time, stay safe, stay healthy. And, um, actually where can folks find out? Is there a, is there a website or social media where f- people can find out about you or follow you? Yeah. Check me out on Facebook. That's, okay. that's the best way. Yeah. Will do. I will let people know. Well, Christian Paradise, thank you so much for your time, and I'll look forward to chatting with you again soon. All right. Thanks, Josh. Thanks, buddy. Okay. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. This podcast was brought to you by Liquid Drum. Liquiddrum.com down in Waco, Texas. Check it out. Hilarious percussion videos, awesome educational content, brand new snare drum book, method book out. Check it out. You won't regret it. Liquiddrum.com. Also, DunleavyPans.com. D-U-N-L-E-A-V-Y Pans.com. Um, Kyle builds and tunes all the steel drums I play on at NYU in Princeton and in soap percussion and personally. Uh, check him out. He's an amazing tuner and builder and a really nice guy. DunleavyPans.com. Also, PanInMotion.com. A bunch of my friends down there started an organization called Pan in Motion. They are a great advocacy organization for the steel pan as an art form, as a culture, but in specifically, in specific, what it does in the Brooklyn uh, arts and culture scene. So check them out, paninmotion.com. And finally, mangochowclothing.com. Aliandre Mirage runs an amazing clothing company that's um, heavily influenced by the steel pan and its culture. Check them out, mangochowclothing.com. All right, hope you're all well. We'll talk to you soon. Bye.